I think it's good to take the time to reflect sometimes, isn't it? I mean, you charge to these series and you go week to week, you get so focused on a passage, and sometimes it's good to zoom out a bit and think about, actually, what's hit home um, through this? I know in our small group, we've been focusing on particular doctrines each week, and you realise the diversity of stuff you deal with in Abraham. You know, there was substitution, there was wrath, there was judgment, there was salvation, there was faith, there was grace, there was works, all this stuff was coming out. Um, and it's interesting how it's just a life of Abraham, right? But that life represents a whole lot of different experiences and different lessons that we can take away from and apply today. All right, I'm just going to pray and then we will get started into looking in these last couple of chapters of Genesis together. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this series on the life of Abraham that we've been able to do together as a church. We thank you for the way you've revealed to us um, about a man who had a, a significant walk and faith with you, the covenant that you made to your people through this man, that he wasn't perfect in all that he did, but he walked faithfully with you nevertheless. Um, Lord, and there's lots to learn from him through that. Lord, we... Um, praise you for his example and the way his example constantly points us to the greater example that is of your son jesus christ who came and did walk the perfect faithful walk and took him all the way to the cross for our sake and we thank you for that and we um, pray that your word will come alive in our hearts to this morning in your name amen now i've been coming to canterbury for a long time and one thing i think i've come to appreciate about canterbury it's actually a pretty diverse place like there's a lot of people that have a lot of different gifts and abilities and different professions they come from different nationalities they've got different levels of christian background some really familiar some fairly unfamiliar um you've got people in all sorts of different ministries both inside the church outside the church people come from all different walks of life and in a small way, that's kind of reflective of our wider community, isn't it? I mean, we're, Melbourne is a very diverse city. We have all sorts of different cultures and people groups and family situations. You just need to go on a drive this Sunday afternoon. You're welcome to do it after church day if you want to, as long as you're back for the Christmas thing this evening. You know, you go from Kilsyth to Surrey Hills to Springville to Box Hill to Epping to Footscray. You get a whole lot of different communities and a whole lot of diversity in what God has created and formed and what we're reminded of again and again and again in Scripture is that although the church is full of a whole spectrum of different people, the call on each of our lives is the same. That's ultimately a call to walk faithfully with our God. You know, time and time again through the Bible, God reminds us that faithfulness is what he is looking for in our hearts. Paul gives us a little snapshot of this when he addresses his letters to the Ephesian, the Colossian church, and he refers to those church as the faithful in Christ. And when Barnabas was sent to the church in Acts chapter 11, he actually called them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We're not called to perfection, thankfully, but irrespective of our imperfections, and no matter who we are or what, we, or what background we're from or what family we're from or how long we have or haven't become a Christian, we're all called to walk faithfully with the God who created us. Now we see this truth shown to us in a pronounced way in today's passage in that we're asked to, uh, or we, we are given the opportunity to reflect on two very different people. One's male, one's female. It's not starkly that different, right? But the differences go deeper than that. One is near the end of his life, being well over 100 years of age. One is right near the beginning of her life. One has been married, but has recently lost his wife. The other has never been married. One is Abraham, 
the one to whom God made a covenant to establish a great people. The other is Rebecca, who we don't really know at this point, and was just sent out to a well one day to collect some water. Two very different people, but one call. A call to be faithful to God in all that he was going to put in front of them. So how are we going to tackle these two different figures this morning? Well, for those that like a bit of a road map, here it is. We're going to start by looking at Abraham's faithfulness to God's promises in the first part of chapter 24, where we see the way he wanted to be faithful to the covenant that God had made with him. Then we're going to switch to Rebecca as the chapter continues, and we're going to look at how she was faithful to God's call. And then lastly, as we look at the end of Abraham's life in chapter 25, we're going to look at the faithful legacy that he left behind. But as we look at these two people, they're just examples for us that we can learn from. But my prayer is that we'll be willing to scratch the surface of our own heart and ask, be willing to ask ourselves the question of what call, God's call to walk faithfully with him means for us, individually and collectively, in the here and the now. So let's start in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to move through it, obviously, but I would encourage you to have your Bibles ready so you can go through the passages. I'll give signposts so you can try and follow where we're up to. So as we start here in verse 1, what we actually see is God's faithfulness to Abraham first up, in that we're told that Abraham is now very old. Now, exactly how old, we're not quite sure, but he's, just, he's, he's lost his wife, who died at the age of, age of 127, so he would be somewhere north of that figure. More important, though, in that verse, it says Abraham was now very old, and it says the Lord had blessed him in every way. Now, you can't help but see that blessing of Abraham as you look closely at the details of his life as it's revealed to us through the book of Genesis. Early on, God gave him military victories as he rescued his nephew Lot. He gained enormous respect from his surrounding nations. He was finally blessed with the birth of Isaac in Sarah's old age, the child of the promise, as he's referred to in Galatians. And in verse 35, we're told by his servant, verse 35 of this chapter, 24, his servant reports and describes Abraham and says, He has become wealthy. God has given him sheep and cattle and silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. Abraham was old, but he had clearly been incredibly blessed by God during his lifetime. And all this ultimately showed that God had been faithful to Abraham in the promise that he had made to him all the way back in chapter 12, verse 2, which I realize this morning is right up behind me. It says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Abraham's life was an outworking of this blessing, wasn't it? That God blessed Abraham in a number of ways. And it reminds to us that whenever we're going to talk about our faithfulness to God, we actually first need to stop and remind ourselves about God's faithfulness to us, don't we? Because being faithful to God doesn't really make sense unless we get our head around the fact that God is first and foremost faithful to us. And his faithfulness to his people is on display right throughout the Bible. You go to the very start of Genesis and you see his faithfulness in the way our first and initial rejection of him in the Garden of Eden was immediately turned into God's salvation plan for us. 
You see, his faithfulness to that salvation plan in the way it then came to be part of or form the backbone of the covenant which he gave to or made with Abraham, that through his seed all nations will be blessed. You see it in the way God's people time and time and time again turn their back on God and yet he welcomes them back when they repent and come back to him. And that's shown by the way he ultimately provided the lamb his own son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to die the death that we deserved so we could live the life that we could never earn. He's truly a faithful God, isn't he? We need to remind ourselves of that fact because the whole reason we're called to be faithful to him is because he is so completely and perfectly faithful to us. I wonder if you need to be reminded, as I do, of his faithfulness this morning because our hearts are prone to forget, aren't they? You know, we get consumed in our circumstances and our struggles and those struggles can be really hard and we can so easily in the midst of that lose sight of who God really is. But the truth is that our circumstances and our seasons will change, won't we? But we know that God is the same in the midst of them yesterday, today and forever. And he is a faithful God who wants to bless his people. Abraham hadn't forgotten God's faithfulness, and so we see how that plays out in his instructions to his servant that follow. Now you see, having just experienced the loss of Sarah, it's like Abraham now recognizes that his son Isaac is probably around the age of 40, and he needs to be married himself. So what does Abraham do? Well, he calls over his most senior servant. This is kind of like, he's sort of described almost as his second in charge. He manages all of his assets and, and his household. And Abraham asked this servant to make an oath, oath with him that he would find a wife for Isaac amongst Abraham's own people in his homeland rather than from amongst the Canaanites where Abraham was living. Now, why was this such a big issue that he wanted his servant to swear it to him on oath? Well, God had promised to establish a nation through Isaac. And that nation was to be set apart for God. So Abraham was wanting to honor that covenant by preserving his family line and not intermingling it with the surrounding nations. In our series last year that we did on the book of Judges, we observed how these, those intermarriages became a huge problem for God's people when they came back into the promised land. For as they intermarried with the surrounding nations, in came their gods, in came their pagan practices and cultures, and the faithfulness and holiness of God's people was inevitably watered down, if not erased altogether. So as God had been faithful to Abraham, Abraham now wanted to remain faithful to God's plan and his promises to him. But look at how the servant responds to this idea in verse 5. He says, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? In other words, your homeland is a long way away, Abraham. What if no one is seriously willing to come back here? I'm going to take Isaac over there. Abraham's servant questions the practicality of what Abraham was expecting here. And I have to admit, I've got a lot of sympathy for the servant. Because as Shabu will readily tell you, I'm pretty quick to question the practicality and the reasonableness of certain things. 
And so often, though, I think I need to be reminded that our doubts and questions can hold us back from seeing what God has in store. It holds us back from seeing what God, seeing God's sovereign control at work. And so what does Abraham say to his servant? Well, he points him straight to God. In verse 7, he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, he's done this to me, he's called me out of that land before, he can do it again, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land, not some other land, this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. To Abraham, the practicalities and the challenges wouldn't matter. He had seen God's faithfulness in his journey to this point, and he was fully believed and trusted that God was going to be good to his promises and that he was going to bring it to fulfillment. He was going to continue the work. There's a truth here that I think we can remember, that faithfulness involves complete trust in God and the promises in his word. Abraham knew his God, he knew God's promises to him, and so he knew that if he trusted in those promises and trusted in who God was, that he was a faithful God, then he knew God would take care of the rest. I wonder how willing we are sometimes to place our trust in God and the promises in his word. I'm sure there are a lot of people here this morning that find it a lot easier to identify with the servant in these verses than it is to identify with Abraham. Our natural human instinct is to question, to question, to rationalize, to doubt rather than trust. We so easily start to think, is he really in control of this? Can I really hand this circumstance over to him? Can I really trust him with this scenario? Is he really going to look after me in this? Is he really going to provide for me? Is he really going to be able to make this good? But remember where we started in chapter 24? He's a faithful God, isn't he? He is good. He loves and wants to bless his people. He's forever faithful. This is who God is. And so Abraham now looks back on who God is. He looks back on what he has done. He looks back on his promises. And then he moves forward knowing that same God would be with him. What situation or circumstance might God be wanting you to hand over to him and to trust in his sovereign control? Well, the story obviously goes on. And then we start to get introduced to a lady called Rebecca. But it's interesting because the balance of chapter 4 actually follows a similar pattern to the first 9 or 10 verses in that we see a demonstration and a reminder of God's faithfulness in how Rebecca is identified. And then we see Rebecca's faithfulness in response. So in verse 10, Abraham, then his, ser- his servant leaves. He leaves with a whole bunch of pra- um, camels and a whole lot of precious gifts, which were no doubt intended to be a gift to um, the bride-to-be or his, her, her family. And he makes his way to the town of Nahor. And he stands by a well at what was close to evening time. This was a time where women would come out to gather water so they didn't have to do it in the heat of the middle of the day. And here the servant pauses and he prays that God would be kind to Abraham by presenting one of these women to him as Isaac's bride. But the servant asks for clarity from God in a curious way. 
He doesn't say, God, can it just be the most beautiful woman, please? I'll take that one back. God, may it just be the first one to the world. He says, no, no, let it be the one who offers me a drink and offers a drink to all of my camels too, being ten camels altogether. Now, I think to make sense of this, we need to take into account the fact that watering ten camels is not actually a small task in that day. Camels are great in the desert areas, aren't they? Because they stockpile water. They store it up so they can go days on end without drinking. So when the camel gets the opportunity to drink, it generally drinks a fair bit. And when you've got 10 camels to water, that's actually a significant effort. The servant wasn't focused on the external things. He was actually asking for something that would reveal about Rebecca's heart. He was looking underneath the surface. Now in verse 16, we're told she was indeed beautiful, but that was not the test. The test was whether she would have the servant heart of Christ. It's a bit of a side note, but for those who are single or dating, it's good to be reminded of what is important when it comes to thinking about a future husband or wife. We can fall in love with appearances, and that's not a bad thing, right? We can fall in love with families. Sometimes we can fall out of love with families. We can fall in love with personalities. We can fall in love with roles and what they do, but that's not where we start. We always start with a heart, don't we, and what's underneath the surface, and a relationship builds from there. Well, Rebecca, then it says she arrives even before the servant had finished praying, it says in verse 15. And just as a servant prayed, she then offers a drink to him and also all the camels until it says they had all had enough to drink. And the servant then is getting excited at this point. He can see something is happening. God is at work. So he then asked about her family. That was the next key element. That was what he was sent to do. And she confirms that she's from Abraham's family line as she is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. God was again putting his faithfulness on full display. So what did the servant do at this point? In verse 27, we're told he bowed down and worshipped the Lord. And I find that really interesting. This is the same servant who started the chapter questioning this task, questioning whether Abraham really wanted him to do it. It seems to almost try and talk him out of it. And now all his doubts have turned to praise. Isn't it amazing how a step of obedience can so often result in our doubts being converted into praise and worship of God because it opens up opportunities to see that God is alive and at work. When we step out in obedience, we see that God is no longer a passive or a theoretical God. We see that all of a sudden he becomes an intensely active God. He's not a God that can't or won't. All of a sudden he's a God that can and does because he's alive and he's at work amongst his people. And he's always that type of God. That character doesn't change. It's just when we step out in obedience, you start to see him at work. And then in verse 28 to 67 then, we see Rebecca catches on with this and we see her faithfulness in response. Now Rebecca hears Abraham's servant praise God for finding her and she brings him back to meet her family. And Laban is, her brother Laban is the first on the scene and he invites the servant in for a meal and, and to share what has happened. 
But the servant says in verse 33, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. He's too excited to eat. Because he knows that God is at work doing something here. He knows that something special is happening. There's nothing more exciting, I think, than when you know and experience God at work. The problem when we talk about God's faithfulness, it can kind of have the impression of a type of ball and chain that stops you from, from doing those things which you really want to be able to do, right? But that's not the picture of faithfulness that we have here. Faithfulness is actually presented as this gateway or an opportunity to journey with God and get front row seats to what God has in store for us. So the servant pushes aside his meal and in verse 34 to 49, he then recounts all that has happened from Abraham's instructions to him standing beside the well to then Rebecca arriving and offering drinks to him and his camels to him then praising God for everything that he had done. And when Rebecca's uncle Laban and her her father Bethuel heard all this that that had happened, they said, this is from the Lord. They acknowledged that God was at work here. And then they said in verse 51, here is Rebecca, take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. Now I know what you're thinking. Rebecca didn't have much choice here, right? This was a family decision. I love the way God seems to effectively anticipate that with what happens next. Because a servant stays the night and he gets up the next morning and he says, I'd like to go with Rebecca now. And family says, well, they want to have 10 days. It's like they want time to say their final goodbyes to Rebecca. So in the end, they hand the decision over to her and ask her in verse 58... Will you go with this man? Now, we need to try, as best we can, in today's culture and context, to capture the emotions at that point. She's being asked to leave behind all that is familiar to her to move to something that is completely unfamiliar. She's being asked to leave behind all that is comfortable and to move to something that's completely uncomfortable because it involves a man she has never seen or met She's been asked to do it immediately without any delay. It reminds me a bit of what we read in Luke chapter 9. When Jesus says to a man, follow me, and he says, let me go and bury my father first. And Jesus says, what does Jesus say? Let the dead bury the dead. Then immediately following it, it's reported in that chapter, someone says to Jesus, hey, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replies, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Hmm. You see, when Jesus calls us to follow him, we are to follow him without hesitation or delay, because nothing is more important than Christ. Nothing is more important than Christ. Now in this narrative, Jesus Christ, who is God's servant, is replaced with Abraham's servant, but the question is the same. Will you leave everything and come with me now? And Rebecca's response are the words in verse 58. She says, 
I will go. I will go. And she leaves with a servant to Isaac's homeland, and they are married. It's actually an incredible step of obedience. And that's true faithfulness, isn't it? It involves a step of obedience. I wonder what your response is when Jesus says to you, follow me. Do you delay? Push it back? I'll deal with that next week. I'll deal with that next month or next year when things feel as though they've settled down a little bit. I'll deal with that when my kids are a little bit older and things seem a little bit more independent, under control. I'll deal with that when the work pressure is off a little bit and I feel like I can manage things a bit more. Or are you willing to look into the eyes of the one who is sent by God and say the words, I will go. I will go. For we will never be faithful to our creator God unless we're willing to take a step of obedience in response to his call. And the beautiful thing is that the one who asks us to follow him, he never asks us to go places that he hasn't gone before. For he set us the perfect example in that he was willing to surrender his place at God's right hand and dwell amongst us as a man and walk a road that led him all the way to a crucifixion on a cross. He stepped out in faithful obedience to the call because he knew that God's plans were perfect, weren't they? He knew that his salvation plan was what would ultimately give God all the glory. So wherever God called him to go, he went without hesitation or delay. So Jesus gets it. He knows it's hard when, like Rebecca, we are asked to step away from the comfortable. He knows it's hard when, like Rebecca, we're asked to leave that which we love behind. But that's why he doesn't say go. He says, follow me. Follow me. So all we need to be willing to do is to cling tighter to Jesus than we do to the things around us. We need to cling tighter to Jesus than we do to the things around us so that like the servant of God, we will allow God to turn our doubts and questions and hesitations into praise and worship as we see God alive and at work in the lives of those around us. Then we get to chapter 25, the final segment of Abraham's life. Now, in the first six verses, Abraham actually remarries. This is after the death of Sarah, obviously. And it says he takes a woman called Keturah as a concubine, and he has six further children to her. Now, she's given a status of a concubine because in that means her children were not entitled to share in the inheritance that was to be preserved for Isaac. For Isaac was obviously the child of the promise through which God's covenant with Abraham was going to become a reality. But we're told that he looked after his sons by providing them with other gifts, and he sent them to live in land to the east. And then in verse 7 to 11, Abraham dies at the ripe old age of 175, if you can believe it. The people gathered around him, but what's interesting is it's his two sons who were born during Sarah's lifetime 
Isaac and Ishmael, who were then reunited for the purpose of burying their father in the same place that Sarah had been buried. And I love the picture we have in these verses of these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. After all their previous tensions and discord and the exile of Hagar and Ishmael, they are now come together and they are reunited as one for the purpose of burying their father after a long and long and faithful life walking with God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2, there's a well-known verse that says, "It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting." For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. No matter how significant a figure Abraham was, we're reminded that death is a destiny for everyone, isn't it? Everyone's time comes to an end. But as it says in Ecclesiastes, there's something about death that the living need to take to heart. Now, my father passed away earlier this year, and I think... I've had a fair bit of cause during that to think through what it is about death that we feel as though we have to take to heart. And in the final days of his life, I remember spending a lot of time sitting beside his bed. And it's a really sacred space. I mean, when you're right there at the pointy, painful end of, of someone's life. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that go through your mind. And I think the thing I was reflecting on, what is it about death that we need to take to heart? And the things that struck me is there's a lot of shared memories that come to you during that time, uh, but that's not the stuff that really mattered most. And there's a lot of stuff that Dad did and um, achieved which are really special. Uh, But again, that wasn't really what mattered most. I think during that time, you're just impacted by the fact that you know the one into which he has entrusted his life. And you know the faithful legacy. There's just something about death that reminds you of what matters. And I think it's this realisation that we're seeing reflected in a little way where Isaac and Ishmael, they come back together and they honour Abraham in his last days. See, Abraham's death was a sacred space, I would imagine, for a man who had walked this journey faithfully with his God, a faith that had taken him to a land that was not his own, a faith on which he had defeated kings to rescue his family members, a faith which had taken him up a mountain to sacrifice his own son at God's command until Ram was ultimately provided as a substitute. A faith that sent his servant to a distant land to find a fitting wife for his son. And it's that legacy of faithfulness that he just sensed made a permanent imprint on his community and in particular his sons Isaac and Ishmael. But doesn't this moment in Abraham's life remind you of a similar scene where you have the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then you've got Joseph of Arimathea, who's described as a disciple, and then you've got Nicodemus, who's described as a religious leader. You've got two people from different walks of life who, in a similar way, are united together to honour his death at that time and to recognise a man who walked perfectly faithfully with his Father in heaven all the days of his life. 
the one whose legacy would ultimately be the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham. And the one whose faithful obedience wouldn't just take him to a faraway land, but would cause him to leave the right hand of his father in heaven to dwell amongst us. And the one who would not defeat kings in battle, but who would reign as the king of kings and offer salvation not just for his nephew, but to all of mankind. The one who, for whom a ram would not be provided as a substitute because he was the substitute. His life was given so that our life could be spared. The one who would not be a fitting wife for his son, who would not find a fitting wife for his son, but who would instead return in the final days to be married to his bride, the church. Isn't it amazing how the faithful legacy of Abraham only serves to point us to the greater Abraham who was to come, to the one for whom death would not hold him down, and who reigns at the right hand of God and who will come back one day and gather together all of the faithful in his name and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And my prayer, if, that's, if you know in your heart that's not the reality for you this morning, I pray that you would reflect on that person, Jesus, the greater Abraham, and ask the question about what this idea of faithfulness means to you. And how you will respond to a God who is absolutely committed and faithful to you. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we have to ask the question, what does that mean for us now? Because faithfulness to God points those around us to Christ like nothing else. A faithful legacy is a powerful testimony to who God is and what he has done and the salvation we have through him. So how might God want us to walk faithfully with him so that we might point those around us to Christ? Remember, we're all very different people, aren't we? Different gifts, abilities, different stages of life, different circumstances and situations, but there's the one call to walk faithfully with our God. That doesn't mean we don't fall over and, and mess it up. You know that we all do, right? But it means that we get up again and we cling tightly to our God and Saviour once again. Because a life of faithfulness is not an easy thing. It's not easy. It's not easy because it involves complete trust in God and his promises. And it involves steps or steps of obedience. That's not easy. But the very reason it's tough, that's the reason why a life lived in faithfulness to God is such a powerful witness that points others to Christ and to God's faithfulness to us. Thankfully, we don't walk this journey alone, do we? We can be faithful to God because we know that he has always been and will always be absolutely and perfectly faithful to us. So let's place ourselves in his hands, knowing that the one whose love took him all the way to the cross will continue to stand by our side as we move forward faithfully with him. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the life of Abraham. We thank you for the examples we have here in both Abraham and Rebecca of the faithfulness, of their faithfulness to you, but the reminder that that flowed from your faithfulness to us. Lord, we thank you that your faithfulness to us is something we will never get our head around because it is so completely undeserved. Lord, it is pure grace. And it is a grace that was expressed through the sacrifice of your son.
Lord, may you empower us through your spirit to have a complete trust and dependence in you and your promises, to be willing to take those steps of obedience which we feel you may be calling us to, and that through our, that we might cling tighter to you than we do to those around us, so that our life might be a powerful witness of your love and grace and faithfulness. And we pray these things individually, but also as a church, that we might journey this together as one. In your name we pray. Amen.